Jesus died and rose for us. And if we believe in him, we'll be forgiven and have eternal life. I, I, I try to get that gospel message. And as we turn here to Matthew 26, 36 to 46, I think that's exactly what we see. Jesus is perfect. We are not. But he took the cup from us. Look with me. I'll be on the screen here as well. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. We see very right there in verses 36 to 39 is that Jesus is sinless. He's aware, he's willing, and he's sinless. Then in 40 to 41, we get a picture of the disciples as sleepy, weak, and sinful. And then finally, in 42 to 46, that Jesus drank the cup of wrath for us. So look at 36 to 39, first of all. This takes place in the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane was a garden, as obviously, as we see here. It was in likely an olive grove. Um, literally, Gethsemane means olive press, there is uh, what is the traditional place of Gethsemane, I have a picture of, um, that uh, they believe the Garden of Gethsemane was here. Uh, we got a chance to visit this a few years back. We don't know for certain if that was the place, but a place certainly like that, a place that was filled with olive trees. Um, and Jesus, as he arrives, this is probably a place that he went to regularly, maybe in the evenings to sort of escape from the crowds not far from Jerusalem. And he says to his disciples, all of them except Judas, Judas is no longer here, he's already gone to the chief priests to bring them to Jesus because he knows this is a place that they go to often. He says to the disciples, sit here while I go pray. And then he goes a step further, he takes three of the disciples, uh, particularly Peter, and it says the sons of Zebedee, those are two brothers, James and John. In fact, it it can be said, I think, that Jesus had a sort of inner circle. (laughs) Within his 12 apostles, there were three that he was particularly close to. Peter, perhaps most of all, and then John. That's the same John who wrote the Gospel of John, who wrote the book of Revelation. And this is James, his older brother, 
who was the first of the apostles who was martyred, according to the book of Acts. So he takes those three and he goes even a little further in and he says, stay here and watch while I go even further to spend some time in prayer. And we learn that Jesus is sorrowful and troubled. Now, if you know the Gospels, if you've read the four, any of the four Gospels, you know that his life is full mostly of joy. <laughs> it's full of life. It's full of healing other people. It's full of reaching out to lepers and to the poor, to the outcasts, to the least likely of people, and bringing them in. But here we see the man of sorrows, grieving, because he knows what's coming. It says, as he goes a little further in, he falls on his face. Typical way to pray in that first century was to stand with your hands, palms up into the air. You might go a step further and kneel. That wasn't typical for prayer, but we do see that from time to time. Paul says, I kneel before God. But here he falls prostrate on his face and cries out, Father. It's an intimate prayer. And we get a little glimpse of his relationship with the Heavenly Father. We don't get the whole thing. He prayed for an hour or so. But he's within earshot, enough so that the disciples can hear some of the prayer. Or Jesus told them the prayer later on. But more likely, they could hear some of the prayer. And his prayer is very simple. Let this cup pass from me. We'll talk about the cup a little later on. But he says, not as I would want, not as I would will, Father, but yours will be done. I submit my desires, my plans, my want to you. What we see here is Jesus' holiness on display. Uh, and, and at the hardest of times, right? Right? It's easy to be, I think it's easier, of course, to be a faithful disciple, follower of Jesus, faithful Christian, when everything is going well, right? When the sun is shining down on you and the blessings of God just seem to be pouring in. But who are you when the rubber meets the road, when times get tough, when the greatest trial of your life hits home? Who are you on the dark night of the soul? Here's Jesus. What do we see here? He is aware, first of all. He is spiritually aware. He is not blind. He is not sleepy. He understands the Father's will. He understands that the cross, the suffering of the cross, is coming and is what the Father has asked of him. He is willing. Uh, he, he, He asks, he makes a request of God the Father that he could let this cup pass, that this wouldn't happen. In his full humanity, of course, he doesn't want to suffer. He doesn't want to be forsaken by the Father. He doesn't want to feel the weight of sin on him. But Jesus says, ultimately, the Father's will be done. Perfect example of obedience. He's sinless. He never complains here. He never doubts God. He never loses hope. He turns his care over to Abba. It's the 
Aramaic word he would have used, Father. Jesus is perfect. That's what we see here. Uh, He's fully human. All right, so he's fully God, fully man. Um, If Jesus never felt pain, if he never had fear, if he didn't pray this prayer, in other words, if Jesus said, oh, the cross is coming, walked into it with a big smile on his face and laid his hands down, we would certainly and rightfully, I think, doubt that he is fully human like you and me. Now, this genuine fear. And yet, he walks straight into it, trusting the Father. Actually, what we see here is what Adam was supposed to do. So let me get a little theological here briefly. Adam was, of course, in the garden, a different garden, the Garden of Eden, and was called to obey the Father's will and failed. What we see here is our new representative head. Just as Adam, in one sense, all of us are summed up in the first human being, right? He's the representative head of humanity. In Adam's, sin, in Adam's uh, fall, we sinned all, right? Here is our new Adam, our new representative head. And where Adam failed, Jesus obeys. He's the ultimate example, certainly. Uh, if you want to know what moral perfection looks like, look at Jesus here. In the face of trial and temptation, walking in obedience to God. Uh, you get a, a perfect example of prayer, certainly, right? It's more than that, but it's certainly that as well. It's, it's recognizing that our prayers are always submitted to the Father. We could pray and pray, Lord, let me out of this prison. I, I, I'm serving this life sentence. I want to just experience freedom. But sometimes the answer is no. Lord, heal me from this cancer or this heart disease or this ongoing fibromyalgia, but not my will, thy will be done. It's a perfect example of how we pray, trusting the Father. But most importantly, he's the sinless lamb. He's the spotless sacrifice. He's innocent. He's our king. And he's the great high priest without sin. Now let's look at us, 40 to 41. Uh, We, and I I include us with the other disciples here, we're sleepy and weak and sinful. (laughs) We're the exact opposite of Jesus here. Uh, We see the weakness of everyone else but Jesus here. His moment of greatest trial so far, and he comes to his disciples, the the people on this earth that he's closest to. Uh, If Jesus had friends, which he did, because he said, I call you friends, these were his closest friends. In fact, if you take those inner three, those are his closest, closest friends. And if you had to say, who's his best friend on this whole planet, Earth, when he was here, it would be Peter, I think. And he asked them for one thing, stay awake and pray. And he finds them sleeping. You would think maybe Peter would be different than the rest. Maybe he'd be the one apostle that sort of rises above everyone else, but no. Jesus, heartbroken, looks at him and says, couldn't you keep watch for one hour? That's all I asked. He says the spirit is willing, the heart, the desire, the love of Jesus. No doubt these apostles loved Jesus. It's not not saying that they never really loved him. But the flesh. Flesh is a synonym for our sinful, fallen nature. It's weak. They fail him. As I said, it's the opposite of Jesus, and this is where we fit, friends. They are unaware. 
as Jesus was aware clearly of the spiritual reality happening at that very moment, they are totally blinded and dumbfounded. He told them again and again, um, yet they have no sense of the danger. His whole life, his whole ministry, I should say, he said, the hour has not yet come. The hour has not yet come. And then here he finally says, the hour has come. This is what it's all about. And they can't keep their eyes open. They're unaware. They're not willing. Um, trust me. I mean, I've been sleepy. You guys have been sleepy. Actually, my wife says I'm borderline narcolepsic. And uh, she's probably right. I can sleep anywhere at any time. I mean, I could fall asleep. I could fall asleep up here in the pulpit if I really wanted to. I really believe I could do it. But they had a choice. I mean, I know when I have to stay awake. If I'm driving, my kids are in the car, I have to stay awake. I won't fall asleep. They have no excuse here. They're weak, spiritually weak. Their flesh is weak. Their relationship with God is just not strong enough to be diligent in prayer. They're sinful. That's what sin is. They were commanded by Jesus something very specific, three things, watch and pray. Well, two things I should say. Watch and pray, and they disobey. I'm not there to just pick on these disciples. This is us. This is all people. Honestly, consider for a second if it was you in that garden, do you really think you would have done any better? And we we like to make so much of heroes. (laughs) We like to make much of celebrities. You know, we think they're better than everyone else. They're sort of on a different tier or politicians. You know, we want a king in this world that is so great and so good that we're willing to charge into battle and to die for him or her, a queen, I guess. Or we look at athletes as if they must be so amazing, and then we find out they're nothing more than sinners. Uh, My hero growing up was Michael Jordan. (laughs) So I was a big basketball fan. Jordan was my guy. watched all of his games, and um, and I was so disappointed. And it's not to pick on him, because we're all sinners, like I'm saying. When I got to learn a little about, about him as a person, he took his Hall of Fame speech, and he used it as an opportunity to praise himself. He looked at his kids, and he said, I'm glad I'm not you guys having to live in the shadow of Michael Jordan. All the other players use it as a chance to praise and thank their families. We make too much of people. We're just sinners. But friends, we don't have to look that far. We just look no further than our own hearts. I can see enough sin there to keep me busy all day long. By the way, it's said that this is the easiest doctrine of the Christian faith to convince someone of, that we're sinners. Wars and poverty and hunger and genocide and murder and greed and sexual sins are everywhere. We need a savior. We need one who is perfect. Yes, we need an example, but far more than that, we need a savior to rescue us from our sin. 42 to 46. Jesus goes to prayer again and asks once again, Father, if this cannot pass, unless I have to drink it, then your will be done. He's even more resigned to the fact that this cup must be drunk. And he submits to the Father. By the way, he finds them sleeping two more times, (laughs) failing him. 
You think of the first one, at least then they would have grasped it, but they don't. And then says the Son of Man, which is a reference to himself, is betrayed into the hands of sinners, meaning into the hands of the Sanhedrin and the hands of the Romans, really into the hands of this fallen and broken world. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer, which we know is Judas, who comes and kisses his master as the ultimate sign of betrayal. What is this cup, though? He's talked about it a little bit. This cup I have to drink. Now, for this, I think we have to look at the history of Israel. We have to look at the Old Testament. We have to look at what is this cup filled with wine that Jesus is referring to, obviously talking about a symbolic cup. Uh, wine, of course, is something that has a little bit of a sting. It's alcohol, so it has a little bit of a, um, a bitterness to its taste. And so it was often used in the Old Testament as a picture of the judgment of God. And this is pretty consistent. I'm going to give you a number of verses here real quick. Psalms, Psalm 75, 8, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Isaiah 51:17 Wake yourself wake yourself stand up O Jerusalem you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath who have drunk to the dregs the bowl the cup of staggering Jeremiah 25:15 Thus the Lord the God of Israel said to me take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it Ezekiel 23:31 You have gone the way of your sister meaning uh, Judea has gone the way of Israel the northern kingdom therefore I will give her cup into your hand thus says the Lord God you shall drink your sister's cup that is deep and large in Habakkuk 2:16 the cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory this cup is the cup of righteous judgment from God. Why would Jesus have to drink it? He would drink it because it belongs to us and he takes that judgment on himself. Understand, guys, the cup is a good thing, not a bad thing. We want a just God. The last thing in the world we want is a God of injustice who simply lets sin go and where it may, and there's no answer to any cosmic justice in this university. That universe, that would be the ultimate evil. But it also means that justice is coming my way, in your way. And if God poured out his righteous cup on me, he would be fully justified in doing it. He's the judge. And as Abraham said, will not the judge of all the earth do right? But here's the gospel. But in his mercy, he pours it out on his son in my place. Who, by the way, willingly takes it. Jesus said, no one takes my life. I wait, lay it down of my own accord. He could have stopped it at any moment. At any moment, Jesus said, could I not ask the Father? And he would send legions 
of angels to my defense. Friends, this is the gospel that we believe. This is the most important message we have. This is the most important message there is. (laughs) This is the most important message there will ever be. That he who knew no sin became sin for us. That in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our message as Christians is not do good. Although do good. All right. Our message as Christians is not get baptized. Although as a Christian, get baptized. (laughs) Our message as Christians isn't go to church. Although, go to church. Our message is believe in the Savior that God has provided and that the ends of the earth can be saved if they know him. I want you to think for a moment, if you really believe this, I mean really, really believe this, how would that change the conversations you're going to have this week? How would that change your view of missions? Seeing this gospel transform the world. Jesus is sinless. We are not. But he took the judgment for us. I've been a Christian for 27 years. Hard to believe that. So when I was 15 years old, I really sort of took Christ as Savior and as Lord. Even before that, the Lord was at work, of course. I was learning, I was growing in different ways, understanding the Bible. And I I remember a time in which I really believed there wasn't, I don't think I ever believed there wasn't a God, but really 15 years ago, 27 years, I've been a Christian and walked with the Lord. I've studied probably more than is healthy for me, (laughs) read more books, been able by the grace of God to travel the world. This is the greatest message in the world. This is the greatest message in the world. Your sins, though they are many, are forgiven. Through Christ and what he has done, friends, we are forgiven from judgment. The young and Gilbert in the book, What is the Mission of the Church, say this, there is something worse than death. And only the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed by Christians and protected by the church can set us free from what we truly must fear. But friends, in Christ, that fear is gone. And what we end up with instead is a reconciled relationship with the Father and the hope of eternal life. That we will walk in intimacy with our God and our Creator. I titled this In the Garden because, of course, Jesus is in the garden here. But, of course, that's the name of a famous hymn. And I'll end with this. And it's this type of relationship that we end up with because of Christ's willingness to bear the cup. I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. And the voice I hear falling on my ear, the Son of God discloses. And he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me, I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, thank you that during this Lent season, you call us once again to get our eyes focused on Jesus, and specifically 
particularly what he has done for sinners like me, like us, who need a savior. And because of Christ and his willingness to bear this cup in our place, we have hope. Not, not a weak hope, not a shaky hope, a real, true hope of knowing you and walking with you and of being with you forever. That penalty, the penalty for sin is paid and we are yours forever. For those who are yours, Lord, you will never, ever forsake Thank you, Lord. Fill our hearts with worship. In Jesus' name, amen.